this week on the Backtable Podcast. I know that it is very difficult to go significantly anterior, you know, from posterior to anterior, from your right hepatic vein to the right portal vein in any meaningful fashion. You, know, you can curve the needle, you can do a lot of things, but when it comes down to it and you're inside the liver, your needle is more going cranial to caudal and less posterior to anterior. And so what I look for realistically is if I put my cursor on the hepatic vein and I scroll down, leaving my cursor where it is, am I going to run into a portal vein? And if the answer is it's two centimeters anterior, it's just not going to happen. And I go to the middle and I do the same thing again. And I think that disabusing myself of the notion that I somehow have this ability to go anterior within the liver in some 90 degree angle that is great has really, really helped me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you're a new listener, welcome for all of our regular listeners. Welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review or reach out to us on Twitter or email. We love the feedback um, and let us know how we can make this podcast a more valuable resource for the IR and endovascular community. I'm Chris Beck. I'll be your host today. I'm based out of New Orleans, Louisiana, Interventional Radiology. We'll be talking about transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunts, or TIPS, as they're known. Our guest today is a former attending of mine and a good friend, Dr. Emmett Linsky from Georgetown. Emmett, welcome to the show. Thanks uh, very much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Will you just tell um, listeners where you are, I mean, Georgetown, but kind of how long you've been in practice and what your practice looks like currently at Georgetown? Absolutely. So I started at Georgetown about eight years ago. I did my fellowship at Georgetown and I've been in a thing there ever since. In general, the way my practice really started in terms of developing it into what it is now was after my second year, I started becoming more and more interested in portal hypertension. And I was a little bit lucky in that Georgetown is a pretty major liver transplant center. Uh, and at the time, more than anything, we lacked a lot of support from anesthesia. So most of our semi-urgent tips ended up happening late at night uh, and no one else wanted to do them. Uh, and so as a result, I ended up uh, being the person who stayed late and did a lot of the kind of semi-urgent to non-urgent tips uh, when we could get anesthesia support. And as a result, uh, I ended up enjoying it. Uh, and then uh, as I began to participate more and more with the hepatobiliary conference and our uh, multivisceral transplant team, uh, my practice kind of evolved from there. All right. So what I wanted to know is, because I, th I feel like I was there uh, as a fellow during the, the conversion where we went from like having just like tips every now and then to like a constant steady flow of, of those referrals. And so uh, what I want to know is like, when did the referral pattern switch from like this occasional tips that happened every now and then to doing, or actually, and also would you also uh, tell the audience, like how many uh, a week do you do roughly? Right. So I think that that's a good question. So during the way things evolved during my first year uh, as an attending, I did maybe five or 10 tips. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a pretty low number. Uh, one of my partners was also doing some at that point as well. And I think he did five or 10. So we were doing about 20 to 25 a year. 
the the real switch and in my second year i kind of did more and more and so maybe i did uh 20 my second year it was really at the the back half of my third years in the attending that things really took off uh and at that point we started kind of getting to the volume where we are now between 50 and 80 a year so we do roughly one a week and the the way that that transition occurred was kind of twofold one is that at that point I became the main person who was doing all the tips. Uh, and then two, really what I had started doing was scouring the uh, patient lists for hepatology and throughout the hospital, looking for any indication I could find on any inpatient uh, who might need a tips. And so if you came in with a diagnosis of encephalopathy and that was your chief complaint, uh, I got to the point where on a weekly basis, I was scouring the chief complaint of every patient or new patient into the hospital. And in combination with going to a patibulary conference uh, and being pretty aggressive and then having some good results, uh, we turned the corner that way. And I think another important change that happened uh, right around that time is uh, the guys from Northwestern uh, put out uh, some of their early work on tips for uh, portal vein thrombosis. Uh, and we adopted that pretty quickly and had one or two early, pretty good successes. And so then we started picking up um, a lot of pre-op uh, or pre-transplant portal or SMV partial thrombosis uh, tips. Okay. And was there anything in terms of like, there there was a fairly uh, steady flow of patients who are uh, getting recurrent paracentesis for ascites. Um, was there any conversion of those patients from, you know, re repeat paracentesis to the tips? Right. And I think that's a, a really good question. So right around that time, our practice took over all the paracentesis uh, in the hospital. And so what used to be body imagers or on the floor or everywhere else were all consolidated to interventional radiology. Uh, and again, as a, as a result of that, as we were working up the patients, I would calculate a meld on every single recurrent paracentesis patient. And even if they were brand new, I would personally go in there and just plant the seed of what a TIPS was. Hey, I'm Dr. Linsky. Uh, I'm going to be doing your paracentesis today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our procedure in the event that you need it. And you don't need it right now. But in three or four months, if you're still getting this and we've really optimized you, there's a procedure we can do that can, you know, really help you uh, potentially if you're a good candidate and your hepatologist and I will work together to decide this. But what that did is it planted the seed of what a TIPS was and I got to control the narrative of what a TIPS was to the patient. So it wasn't, we might do this procedure, but it could give you wild encephalopathy. It was, we can do this procedure that would stop your bleeding get rid of your ascites, potentially help your nutrition, potentially help your kidney function. Uh, and they weren't being pushed. And I think that that was a very, very important uh, feeling that the patients had is that they felt like they were the one bringing it up and they were the one in control rather than being like, your liver is spiraling out of control and now you're getting this major surgery. Okay. From the patients who are like, I'm just interested in digging in a little bit of this, um, from the patients who you were doing the uh, repeat paracentesis on, have any idea like how many patients you were converting or were ending up like for a refractory ascites for a TIPS indication? So early on, the conversion was pretty low. Uh, and the reason why is that early on, uh, the we hadn't had the history of success of getting rid of the ascites. And... Uh, there was still a pretty large fear of the encephalopathy. 
And so I would say if we had four or five people coming in regularly at any one time, yeah. uh, the patients would have to become pretty debilitated, almost paracentesis once uh, a week, maybe even more frequently than that before they would come over. And as time went by, that conversion rate, uh, you know, really picked up. And so rather than making sure that the patient was completely refractory to diuretics, you know, if they were having to go up on diuretics and saw even the slightest bump in creatinine, now uh, I'm tipsing patients a lot earlier. Uh, and so it, again, it's a little bit of practice and it's a little bit of uh, persistence, um, mm -hmm. but that that's kind of how it evolved. Yeah. And it sounds like you've also like kind of won over like the referring docs, like the hepatologist in a way, just by having some success on the back end for the procedure. Right. And I think there, there are two things that happen uh, with the hepatologist. One, you have to be a little bit aggressive in talking to them. They have uh, a certain mindset about what happens when you do a TIPS. You know, they are conditioned to be afraid of encephalopathy. Uh, they are conditioned with certain meld numbers. And, but if you really take the time to look at the imaging and can kind of understand what's going on, I think you can change the narrative a little bit and you can kind of offer to them some of the benefits they don't necessarily see. Um, and I think that, you know, if you have a couple of good successes, um, that really goes a long way. And then owning your mistakes. I think that's the other thing that, uh, you know, I, I've really been careful to do. And I think that this is where, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but uh, if you are willing to manage the lactulose, manage the refactment, be the primary call when someone has encephalopathy, and then, you know, help manage the diuretics shortly after the tips, you get a lot more credit from your hepatology team. Uh, sure. And then on the other side of things, if you also never do a tips unless you, they are plugged in, that's a really, really important um, kind of angle to take. Uh, and so as my practice grew and I have outside referring gastroenterologists sending me uh, tips from the community, they all get referred to the transplant center and get worked up before I will uh, do the tips. And um, fortunately, with my hepatology colleagues, we've worked out a system where the endoscopies and the procedures that the uh, primary GI wants to do they still get to do them. And that's, that's again, you know, the, the GI and the transplant center being sensitive to the fact that, you know, the, the local GI doesn't want to lose their patient. Sure. No, I get that. So it, it's kind of like you're walking that fine line between making sure you're working with your transplant team, but also not burning your referral pattern from the outside docs. Right. And I think the important from the transplant perspective, you know, over the last maybe four or five years, I went from being someone who was a kind of service to them, to someone who refers to them. Uh, and if you are a transplant, you know, I probably only refer six or seven people a year, but that's six or seven prime decompensated cirrhotics that they are getting a year. And that, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, they, they look at you differently when you're a refer. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Um, all right, let's take a slightly left turn and then talk about most common indications for tips. And then specifically, like, what are you seeing most commonly, like in your practice? Right. So I think that that's a really good question. Uh, it's shifted a little bit, uh, you know, since, since I started. So if I were going to do it in percentages, I would say about 60 to 70% of my tips are refractory ascites. Okay. Uh, and mainly because that to some extent or other is a pressure point in the community. So I get a decent amount of community referrals. 
Uh, and then that's also what I'm exposed to constantly here. So I can actually do, you know, I don't want to say market, but I can uh, be pretty aggressive with the patients we're seeing who are getting uh, the paracentesis. The second uh, batch, I would say, is about maybe 15 to 20% is at Georgetown. What we've decided as a group is that the people who have portal or superior mesenteric vein thrombosis, um, if you have any extension into the superior mesenteric vein or even the confluence, you're going to get a TIPS. Um, and so these, as soon as someone pops even a single image, that automatically gets referred. Uh, so that helps quite a bit. And then pa patients who have portal vein thrombosis who are on anticoagulation, who do not improve or progress, uh, will end up getting a TIPS. So that's the next chunk that we do. I would say kind of the next five or 10 uh, percent are uh, the bleeders, the acute bleeders that I think all of us get. Georgetown's a relatively small hospital. And, you know, to be perfectly fair, we've been full for about two years. Uh, so we just don't get the transfers that we used to. So that's probably why it's a little bit smaller. Uh, we see a fair number of uh, Bud Chiari. Um, mm. That would be the next one. Again, as a multivisceral transplant center, um, you're getting a uh, percentage of patients who are also thrombosing off uh, their super mesenteric vein or anything else like that. So um, they'll come to me for that. And then again, because the multivisceral transplant, uh, we're doing more and more uh, patients who have complete portal mesenteric thrombosis uh, acutely. So rather than waiting for the patients to develop varices or becoming chronic, if you thrombose off your portal, superior mesenteric and uh, splenic vein, you're going to get a tips here and a thrombectomy. Uh, and, you know, hydrothorax, a couple other uh, indications are a little bit lower pre-surgical. Uh, okay. But, you know, those kind of teeter off. Okay. So just digging in a little bit into the SMV thrombosis, you said as soon as like a single image pops positive for like an SMV thrombosis, that like the, all the referrers just happen to know that's the route or is there something that kind of like triggers you? Good, good question. So for, for a while, uh, we had a, um, like a bot that, uh, s basically surveilled every dictation that happened for the words superior mesenteric vein thrombosis. Uh, and I would reach out to, uh, the, re the referring hepatologist, uh, and then more and more as kind of that didn't really work out as well as I had hoped uh, at Habatabiliary Conference. We, okay. you know, anything that comes up and we just look and when they have a little bit, we discuss it as a group. And really it's trying to avoid the jump graphs. And, and again, it, you can get some pretty great, very clear successes, uh, which really makes the transplant surgeons happy. And again, there are some institutions where if they have even a little bit of portal super superior mesenteric vein thrombosis, they really won't get a liver transplant. So I get a lot of these partials that come in for multivis evaluation, mm -hmm. who then we do the tips on and they can actually go back and, uh, and get a standard transplant. Okay. Awesome. All right. So let's uh, switch gears. And so we know that most common indication is uh, in your practice, refractory ascites, and, and that's probably echoed throughout the, the community. Um, so what would be your, your basic workup for your TIPS referral? And, and to simplify it, we'll just assume that it's a patient with refractory ascites. Um, so like outpatient referral for refractory ascites, like how would that workup start with you guys? All right. So it's kind of a two-pronged thing. So usually mm -hmm. what will happen is either they'll come in through the community or they'll come in through hepatobiliary, you know, but the kind of the final common route is we discuss the patient in hepatobiliary and they get referred to my clinic. 
Um, and then I usually see them in clinic. Now, not at this point, telehealth, whatever else with COVID, uh, it's changed a, a little bit. Uh, but there, there are a number of different things that I really want to look at uh, when I'm seeing the patient in clinic. The first thing that I you know, want to look at is just their cross-sectional imaging. Um, I found that to be absolutely invaluable. It's either a CT uh, or an MRI. Uh, I'm looking that for planning. Uh, I'm looking at that for my anesthesia time. I'm looking that for access uh, and wondering if I'm going to need to use any adjunct techniques. The other thing uh, that I'm going to look at when I'm working these patients up is their MELD score, right? So I want to look to see uh, what is the basis of their uh, dysfunction. Uh, you know, if someone has an elevated bilirubin uh, and, you know, a relatively high MELD at 17 or 18, I'm going to be looking for shunts, right? Uh, do they have something that is sumping blood away from their portal system that I could embolize that maybe makes that 17 or 18 MELD not as serious? Uh, you know, do they have a recanalized umbilical? Uh, or is it being driven primarily by... Uh, creatinine. Now I use the original meld rather than the sodium meld, but if they're being driven mainly by creatinine, then I want to know, is this secondary to diuretics or is this secondary to CKD? Uh, because and before, actually, can I back you up a second? Like, can I just ask you to uh, go back and, cause we have a lot of listeners who are, are in the trainee phase. Will you back up and just talk about meld, like from a real basic level and in the meld that you use and like which, which each indicator or which each uh, value within the meld score, like is kind of a driver, like, you know, the, the foundation of what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the meld score is the model for end stage liver disease. It's mortality predictor, but, uh, you know, some good research from a while ago done by others, uh, has shown that it's actually a pretty good predictor for outcome, uh, with tips. Uh, and the MELD, more than anything right now, is used for liver transplant listing and kind of ranking on the list. The MELD score is composed of your creatinine, uh, your sodium, your bilirubin, and your INR. Uh, and that is the new MELD. That is the MELD sodium score. The original MELD score does not include uh, the sodium. And the way I explain this to patients is, you know, the, the liver is a factory and it creates proteins. And so those proteins are what drive your INR. Uh, the liver is a kind of cleaner and producer of bile. Uh, and so it is, you know, that is, you know, how strong is the liver at doing that? What is that function? And then the liver has the ability to mess with the kidneys. And how sick is the liver such that it is messing with the kidneys? And so, you know, if you're trying to think of those three things, each one uh, can represent a, you know, or dysfunction in each of those things can represent a, a different problem. Um, and so it could be that, you know, you have really bad uh, ascites. And so we've given you so many diuretics, we've sent you into renal failure. Well, that could bump you up 10 points. Or it could be that your portal flow is completely reversed uh, and your liver isn't getting enough blood. And so your meld is up as a result of that. Or it could just be your liver is just really, really, really sick. Uh, and everything's up. Um, and so that's kind of the, the way I try to look at it. Part of the reason why I look at the meld original versus the meld sodium is there's been some pretty good research to show that the meld sodium uh, is not uh, does not correlate as well with TIPS outcomes as the original meld. And to be fair, all the original research that was done in this and subsequent research has shown that using the original meld uh, particularly with kind of a soft cutoff of 18 uh, meld score uh, for someone that you would feel pretty comfortable doing is, is what 
people use. So will you talk about some of those cutoffs and thresholds that you have for uh, whether or not you're going to take someone for tips? Yeah. So, you know, obviously the, the closer you get to six, uh, the better uh, someone's liver is functioning. Uh, and in general, uh, I would love to have someone whose meld is less than 15. Um, but, you know, the 15 to 18, still you feel pretty comfortable, though there's some good data to show that their outcomes aren't going to do as well. You know, for me, uh, because I have the ultimate backstop of transplant, uh, we extend things out pretty far. So if you have a meld of 24, 25, we'll probably go up to there and be pretty comfortable if we leave a really small tips and, you know, given, you know, an individual patient, maybe take out uh, a large shunt uh, or two, we'd feel pretty comfortable. Above, uh, you know, 26, 27, 28, getting way, way high up. Uh, sometimes it's just for portal vein patency. So they're saying like, look, this patient's going to go for transplant in the next five days. We want an open portal vein. Right. Like we, we don't want to do it. And so, and then, you know, Again, it's institution dependent, but someone who's bleeding profusely and young, you know, we'll, we've, we'll do tips, you know, is melds as high as high thirties. And again, with the, you know, ready acknowledgement that the mortality rate is through the roof. But I think in general, we've decided as a institution that we would rather offer the tips and perhaps maybe let the person die of liver failure than exsanguination. Sure. Um, and, you know, there are places that say, you know what, we're just going to put it in the Blakemore and let it sit. And I think that that's very reasonable as well. Uh, and I think that's pretty institution dependent. Okay. And then circling back to like the, the you know, this theoretical workup on a patient with refractory ascites, you kind of said in an ideal world, you would like someone with a patient uh, with a MELD score under 18. But for refractory ascites, you guys are willing to flex on that because you have some, uh, basically you have backup in terms of, you know, a backstop of a transplant. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, that that's exactly right. And to some extent or another, usually these patients are not going to come to me unless they've maxed out on their diuretics. And maxing out on the diuretics could be hyponatremia, but realistically, a lot of times it's AKI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we, a lot of times what we'll do is they'll refer to me and their meld will be, you know, 19 or 20. You wait a couple of weeks, they go down their diuretics and all of a sudden they're back at 15 uh, because their creatinine improves. Uh, and so it's kind of like a you know, underlying acknowledgement that in some of these patients, you know, if you stop the diuretics, you're going to get a little bit of improvement or there's a component of hepatorenal that might get a little bit better. So, you know, that's kind of the first, you know, group I look at, okay. uh, you know, the, the first parameter. The second thing I want to look at uh, for all these patients, unfortunately, again, this kind of corresponds for us with the transplant workup is looking at their echo. So from my perspective, I really want to make sure that they do not have uh, elevated right heart pressures. I found that when we push that, um, or if I say have a echocardiogram that shows uh, pulmonary hypertension, um, I will usually refer those patients for right heart cath. And that's just to make sure that their right heart can handle the increased flow. And particularly as patients get older, and you know, I have this conversation uh, quite a lot uh, because uh, for good or ill with the Nash cirrhotics, I have these little old ladies okay. uh, and I, I, I literally call them, you're, you know, you're my group of little old ladies. And they're usually 70 plus year old women who weigh about, you know, 105 pounds soaking wet. And then they're like 130 with their ascites. Uh, and I'm very, very nervous about those patients. 
uh, because you do the tips and they blow up like the Michelin man. And so that's, it's part of that workup. I'm, you know, very, very careful to talk to them and make sure that their echo and their right heart looks good. Uh, but even then, uh, it doesn't always work out. So I'll have a very, very frank conversation with people who are a, either very, very thin, uh, mm -hmm. and have kind of really no albumin, uh, or who are older, whose heart I don't really, really trust, um, with the fact that like, look, you know what, as we do the tips, we're going to turn you from someone whose fluid goes all into your belly to someone whose fluid goes all over your body. At two to three weeks, you may have legs that are enlarged and weeping, but as your kidney function improves, we can go up on your diuretics and we're going to turn you from someone who does not respond to diuretics to someone who does respond to diuretics. But that does not mean that I'm flipping off a switch. And I think that in, as my practice has evolved, being perfectly honest with the patient that this is a process rather than a one and done, you're never going to see me again, really sets expectations. And so when patients get horrible edema in their legs, rather than calling me scared or, you know, going to their hepatologist, they say, oh, you know, Dr. Lenski, that swelling you told me about has come, uh, you know, and as a result, I have their labs ready. And so they've gotten that set of labs that shows their creatinine is better. And then I call the hepatologist and I say, you know what, now we're going to go up on the, you know, on the diuretics. So that's kind of why the, the heart part is uh, quite important. I, I just want to dig in a little bit uh, to that um, echo. So specifically, like if, if you're a doc who's maybe out there in the community and you're not plugged into a transplant service as well, I just wanted to like go back and emphasize that the echo is one of the very important parts of your work workup and specifically what you're looking for are signs of pulmonary hypertension or right heart failure. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So elevated right heart pressures or elevated uh, right ventricular systolic pressure. And you know, because the thought process is you are now sending a hose into the right heart. Uh, and then the question is, can the right heart handle the increased preload? And, you know, one of the things that I didn't really know when I was kind of starting out was that when we, I initially had this thought where, oh, I'm going to send this patient to cardiology. I'm going to talk to the cardiologist about getting clearance. And my best friend's a cardiologist. And I mm -hmm. called him about this and I said, oh, he's like, we, we don't understand what you're asking when you ask for cardiac clearance for a tips. He, what we really want to know. And he's like, and the question you should put to the cardiologist is, do you think that this patient's right heart can handle an immense increase in preload? At which point they can actually give you a very, very you know, coherent answer. Okay. Uh, and so he said, if you take that question to your cardiologist with the echo, rather than can I, you know, can she have cardiac clearance, which is a very different question. Sure. In their mind, uh, you end up, uh, you know, getting a much more fruitful answer. Um, and you know, it, sometimes I've actually managed swelling and post tips, uh, cardiac issues with the cardiologist rather than the hepatologist. And they're actually very willing partners and have a much more nuanced understanding of, uh, this increased preload, uh, than, than I think a lot of us do. Oh, all right. So yeah, you had told me that story about your best buddy being a cardiologist. And so I thought that was just helpful to know, like how to, you know, if you're out in the community, how to like, uh, basically address that problem with your cardiologist. And so I think that story about the echo and talking about 
you know, can this patient handle added preload is, you know, would be useful to listeners. Let me go back a second to, you said one of the first things that you look at is like the cross-sectional and it helps you with planning. Will you just unpack a little bit of that? Because I feel like that's, um, there's a lot that goes on with someone who does a lot of tips. Like they're, they're seeing a lot more than someone who's just doing a handful a year. And so will you talk about some of the things that you're looking at in your cross-sectional imaging and helping with your, your tips planning? I mean, aside from just like, oh, it's the portal patent or is it out? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, you, you know, but it, it's a good question. So the first, the first thing I always look for is that the, the way that we typically, you know, this, it, there's a lot of variation, but most sure. people think of doing a tips from the right hepatic vein to the right portal vein. And as you know, I've done more and more of these realistically from just my practice, I know that it is very difficult to go significantly anterior from kind of anterior, you know, from posterior to anterior, from your right hepatic vein to the right portal vein in any meaningful fashion. You, know, you can curve the needle, you can do a lot of things, but when it comes down to it and you're inside the liver, your needle is more going cranial to caudal and less posterior to anterior. And so what I look for realistically is if I put my cursor on the hepatic vein, and I scroll down, leaving my cursor where it is, am I going to run into a portal vein? And if the answer is it's two centimeters anterior, it's just not going to happen. And I go to the middle and I do the same thing again. Uh, and I think that disabusing myself of the notion that I somehow have this ability to go anterior within the liver in some 90 degree angle that is great has really, really helped me because I am much, much more willing to move from a right to a middle tips, even from the beginning. I mean, I did one yesterday and that's exactly what I did. I looked and I said, there is no right, uh, significant right portal vein. There is an anterior branch that I'm not going to get to. I need to go middle to right. Uh, and a middle to right, a lot of times will help you. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into ice and that's one of the mm -hmm. benefits of ice in my opinion, but that's one of the first things I look at. Is there portal vein thrombosis is one of the second things I look at. And then the really big thing where I think that the hepatologists and even our colleagues in body imaging uh, don't really look for are what are the significant shunts? Is there a giant SMV uh, to gonadal shunt? Is there a giant IMV that is going down and feeding rectal varices or a gonadal shunt there? Is there a huge splenal renal shunt? Uh, are there huge coronary varices? So all of those things go into my head to think, okay, if there is a large shunt, mm -hmm. it informs a little bit on A, how long the case is going to take, uh, B, what is the degree of encephalopathy that I can expect afterward if they have a baseline level of encephalopathy, and then C, you know, can I potentially improve the patient's overall synthetic function in their liver? Uh, you know, there are some people who have, if you have a 20 millimeter IMV and a, you know, 15 millimeter splinter renal shunt, and I close those down and leave a seven millimeter tips, you, the net overall increase in pressure and potentially flow to the liver uh, will improve, particularly if maybe on ultrasound or on my initial run, uh, the, the portal, or I expect the portal vein to be going retrograde. And, you know, I, so that's something that uh, I look at quite a bit. Uh, and then, you know, I try to look at how vertical the portal vein is. Um, I, obviously, if there's Bud Chiari, um, that, that makes a little bit of a difference. 
And, you know, in particular in that subset of bud chiari patients, because there is such a large hypertrophy of the liver, particularly the caudate, it pushes the portal vein significantly anterior. And so a lot of times I will just do a straight transabdominal ultrasounds, uh, guided stick of the portal and the, uh, you know, the hepatic vein nub. I won't even put a needle down. I'll just go ahead and gun sight it to start. Um, and so you can, you can plan a little bit ahead that way and realize that, you know what, you know, for where I used to get into trouble and why these went from four hours to one hour is you just have to understand like what at some point you will or will not get into the portal vein. Okay. Uh, and, you know, planning that on your cross-sectional makes a huge difference. It sounds like one of the most helpful things that you talked about, because, um, you know, I, I just, if I had to speak for a lot of the listeners, probably not a lot of people are, are doing a lot of Bud Chiaris out there, but understanding that you're, there's only so far your needle can traverse in the AP projection. Like you said, like it's mostly a downward um, trajectory whenever you're making your passes. So, so, all right, so let's move past like the workup a little bit and just briefly touch on um so you're, you've worked up your patients or they're seeing you in clinic. Are there any options, are there any times when you consider alternatives to tips? Like, um, like, and this is kind of a loaded question. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but like, when do you think like, you know what, repeat paracentesis is the way to go, BRTO, Denver shunts, et cetera. Yeah. So there, there've been a couple of really good situations. So if someone is getting into the mid seventies to eighties, your, your success with tips is going to be minimal. Um, and you know, I've had one or two people who've worked out really well. Uh, I've had, and you, you're talking about 70 to 80 is like 70 to 80 years old, right? 78 okay. years old. I, I tend to be a little bit more hesitant with those people. So sometimes I'll offer a, you know, a very, very small tips or, uh, we will discuss Denver shunt and those people, if their heart, uh, looks good, you know, the, the repeat paracentesis my general feeling is I'm not okay with that. Um, I want to provide a, a solution. Uh, now, if they're close to transplant, sometimes repeat paracentesis is just fine and they're going to do okay. And that kind of coupled with that 75 to 80-year-old group is the really question is, do they pass the eye test? Uh, and I can distinctly remember several patients and one of whom, you know, he was borderline end of life. It was like, he's going to go on hospice because of his ascites or, uh, he's going to get a tips. And I did a tips on him and, you know, he just never really recovered well. And he mm. went on hospice anyway. That was a waste of time for him. And it was a waste of time for his family. And I think that if someone is so cachectic from their, uh, liver disease and from their muscle wasting, that they don't have the strength and time to actually build that back up the tips isn't necessarily going to help them for a refractory ascites. Okay. Uh, and so that guy, you know, that I can think of off the top of my head would have done much better with even just a catheter uh, and, you know, not even necessarily a tunnel catheter, just a catheter and kind of, you know, hospice care. Gotcha. Um, the Denver shunt, I have not put in a lot of them, mainly because the transplant service is, you know, very, very, very wary. Um, I think that, you know, there's more literature now to support putting them in. Uh, and I think they're being put in successfully. I just haven't really expanded my practice to that degree. Okay, that's fair. All right, so let's uh, move to like the day of the tips. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that happens in in workup and, and, you know, building up for the the actual procedure. But can we just talk about 
the day of considerations that you have um, after everyone's been uh, worked up appropriately and they're there for the procedure? So good question. Uh, so the first thing we do is when, you know, some, these are, these are all good questions. Like, yeah, it's, 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 it's you because they're, they're me. I mean, geez, I know it's early for you. I mean, I didn't not show up. But yeah, be like, no, hey, Lutsky, what do you do with tips? Yeah, just stab them. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, one of the things that we do when, when anyone comes in is that they're all, all my tips are done under general anesthesia. In general, I tend to book a standard tips for four hours. Okay. Uh, and I think that the reason behind that length of time, which is probably a little excessive, is the way I try to think about it is I need an hour of anesthesia on either side for pre-op workup, getting the patients to sleep and prep, and then waking the patient up and holding pressure. And so that's two hours of my time. And so realistically, you know, two hours for the tips, I think is pretty fair. And, you know, I think everyone has their own issues with anesthesia and that's kind of independent. So I book mine for four hours. Uh, if I'm in a hurry or I need to do it, I'll book them for three. Everyone gets a set of meld labs and a type and cross the day of. The set of meld labs for me is, you know, and I tell this to the patients, the meld is only good the day you draw it. Now, if you have one the day before, that's fine. But I really want to know, is someone acutely coagulopathic? You know, I had a gentleman the other day whose INR went from 1.8 to 3.3. And, you know, so he ended up getting a BRTO and not a BRTO on a TIPS um, in that instance. Or if someone's kidneys have really fallen off the reservation, now their creatinine's five. Um, those are the sorts of things I want to know. It's rare that that happens, but it's also, you know, again, a little bit for academic interest for me is trying to get a, what is the true baseline uh, meld uh, right before they come in. Everyone is a little bit different in uh, whether or not they would like the patient to have a paracentesis beforehand. I think in a, uh, in a perfect world, I would have loved to have had my patients get a paracentesis a couple of days before realistically, even though I tell the patients to get their paracentesis before they come in and say, oh, you know, Dr. Linsky, I knew you're going to do a paracentesis anyway. I saved it for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, great. Uh, and so that almost always happens where, you know, for good or ill, I'm stuck doing that. I type and cross everyone and I tell them I don't really expect to use uh, the blood, but I want to have it on hold just in case. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the pre-op day of um, preparation. So as far as your uh, blood bank considerations, everyone is just uh, typed and crossed, but no products are actually ready or have been. Right. So type and cross for us is I'll have three of blood, two of FFP and one of platelets on hold. Uh, okay. So like I, a three, two, one. Right. Three, two, one. I think, you know, as I, you know, have evolved the practice a little bit. I tend to rely a little bit more on fibrinogen than I used to. Uh, so I really love to grab a fibrinogen uh, on these people as well. And if they're less than 150, rather than putting two of FFP on hold, uh, I'll have FFP and a little bit of cryo on hold. Uh, and again, you know, if you have someone who you're messing around with and you cause a capsular perf and they're, you know, having a portal hypertensive bleed, you know, giving the amount of volume in FFP to improve an INR is just not necessarily as helpful uh, as giving the cryo. Um, okay. And 
So I tend to like to give cryo a little bit more now because it's less volume. So the day of the procedure um, for patients, it, it, does every, is everyone getting a fibrinogen level or is it just or, patient? Or yes. Okay, yeah, so I, I will get it. It takes longer to run and it's mm-hmm. more of a, if I don't have it, I'm going to want it. And so it's more of a safety issue. But yeah, I, I get a type of cross and a fibrinogen on everyone. Okay. Um, and going back to the, the day of paracentesis, for like the uninitiated, can you t- kind of discuss like why you want someone to have a pair ahead of time versus like, or, you know, there, there might be some advantages to doing it day of, but can you kind of like unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. So part of the reason why, even if you had a paracentesis the day before, I'm going to do a paracentesis anyway the day of, is that having a catheter in um, the, the patient's belly while you're doing a tips lets you know if there's bleeding. Uh, so I really like it just for the fact that it is a early warning sign of if it, is it just a little blood, is it a little pink, or is it bright red? And so it goes in regardless. Whether or not they've had it the day before really then looks on renal function. So we're giving them anesthesia. They're potentially having hypotension. Now I'm taking off sometimes six, seven, eight liters. Uh, now, granted, it is beneficial to have that paracentesis in to keep the patient negative, right? You know, we know that if we're trying to decrease preload to the heart and we're not trying to overwhelm the patient day of, trying to keep the patient negative by about a liter the day of is something that's helpful. And so the paracentesis is a useful adjunct to that. Uh, but having a patient negative nine liters on the day of can lead to AKI. And so part of the reason why a lot of us like to have that done beforehand is that the patient's fluid shifts it's better to let them have it a day or two ahead of time rather than adding that insult on the day of the procedure. Okay. So if I hear you correctly, there's a lot of fluid shift day of the procedure regardless and the para having it a couple days before um, makes it a little bit easier control as far as um, like renal insufficiency when you're negative by like eight liters because you just had a para on top of a tips. Right. Okay. All right, guys, that concludes part one of the tips podcast. Stay tuned for part two.